Hey, you're listening to A Time of Monsters, a podcast about our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it. I'm Aaron. Uh, and it's been a while, but this is Adam Pod's latest installment in Planting the Seed, a miniseries exploring Democratic Socialists of America chapters and organizers throughout the country. Uh, our first episode was with Matt T, co-chair of Southside Chicago DSA, so go back and check that one out. Uh, in this episode, I will be speaking with another Chicagoan and personal comrade of mine, Kenzo Shibata, about the Chicago Teachers Union struggle with the city to prevent premature in-person learning as the uh, COVID-19 pandemic rages on. Uh, this interview was recorded on February 5th, so events have significantly changed since then. Uh, namely, that members of the Chicago Teachers Union voted to accept the tentative agreement that will bring school workers back to in-person teaching by 68%. Uh, despite this concession to the city, however, I think you'll be inspired by what Kenzo has to say about the importance of solidarity and what a winning labor movement looks like. There will be a link in the show notes to his recent Substack piece called Losing is a Part of Fighting, as well as where you can find him and support his work. All right, here's Kenzo Shibata. Enjoy. Kenzo, thank you for joining me today. Aaron, thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah. Uh, you've been making the rounds. Yes. Uh, talking about a very important issue right now. Uh, yeah, man. I actually spoke to you on the Trailbillies like last week. Yeah, that wasn't even a week ago. I think that was last Sunday. Yeah, that was last Sunday. Not even a week ago. Um, but uh, yeah, you're, you're going around because in Chicago right now, there is a pressure upon teachers and students to re-enter uh, in-person learning. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of the the response from Trump, which was, I mean, pretty much denying that the virus was even a thing, um, trying to reopen the economy like almost immediately without even the vaccination. Right. You saw a response from um, executive uh, Democrats, governors, mayors uh, in New York, whether Cuomo or de Blasio or California, Gavin Newsom, um, also in Chicago, where there's this rush to like reopen not just businesses, but schools as well. All right. I guess before we even ask you about exactly what's going on now, like, why do you think there's this because the Demo the Democratic Party, we, we would expect, right, would be more cautious about what's going on, right, about actually like you know, making sure at least at the very least that people are not going to be killed, right, anymore. Like yesterday, 5,000 people died. So so what do you think it is about uh, Chicago in specific, but in general, about the response from um, Democratic mayors and governors in trying to reopen prematurely? Because we're a one-party state, really, right now, it, we have a very interesting Democratic Party. We always have. And at this moment, our Democratic Party is in a lot of transitions and in a bit of crisis. And so Lori Lightfoot, she isn't really connected to any kind of uh, base in Chicago. The actual uh, Democratic Party, Cook County Democratic Party chair was her main opponent. She made into the runoff with her. Tony Preckwinkle was her name. And uh, that was kind of Tony Preckwinkle's downfall was the fact that she was so close so closely related to the machine in an election year where people were like really pissed off at the machine. And the machine is 
for most intents and purposes, dead right now. I think Rahm Emanuel, with his neoliberal uh, method of like funneling in money from out of state, uh, mainly from like DC and New York, he was able to like uh, step over a lot of the political machine that existed before him. And there were a few wars that were still connected to that patronage trough that he 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 was smart enough to know not to bust what they had going on there. So Lori Lightfoot took advantage of that. I mean, there's two sides to that too. Like one of the amazing things that came out of 2019 is we elected five socialists to uh, the city council. And that also is because there was that anti-machine animus. Um, but the anti-machine animus at the top of the, t- we, there just wasn't really a good candidate at the top of the ticket. I think Preckwinkle would have been a better choice, but politically she was at the wrong place at the wrong time. I, I did hear that uh, progressives, uh, even like DSA, like Democratic Socialists in Chicago, uh, supported uh, Preckwinkle over uh, uh, Lightfoot. Unofficially, like we didn't endorse at all. The, the DSA chapter didn't. Um, but the United Working Families and the Chicago Teachers Union uh, and the big uh, SEIU mega local, which they, they make up a lot of the, the progressive like movement in Chicago, at least organizationally, um, they were all in for Tony Preckwinkle. And the thinking behind it was that because the machine was dead and she had like amassed quite a bit of power, but kind of the political infrastructure underneath her wasn't really there. If all the unions went in really hard for her, we would be the only, I mean, they'd be, she'd be accountable to us, would have been a bottom line. So she wasn't necessarily all that progressive. She worked her way up through the Chicago political machine. And uh, in a different era, she probably could have won. She was very well liked. There's a couple, there was her being attached to the machine was a problem. And the other thing was she, um, she instituted a soda tax, a, a county level soda tax that pissed off everybody because everyone likes sweet drink. Yeah. That's like Cuomo did that. Yes. I think. Yeah. Cuomo. No, it oh, wasn't Cuomo. It was Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Yeah. Actually that did like his, uh, yeah. Like he did his supersize, like sort of Arizona, like, you know, you get like a double big can, you know, of some shit that's going to like. You might as well drink like, you know, eight cups of coffee, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Or some shit like that. Uh, and yeah, but. And then Palin, that was her shtick, was like, I'm bringing back the big gulp. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Which like, we're all like, you know, Americans where we're like, we have to indulge yeah. more, more, you know. But I guess like what what I found interesting and the reason why I asked that initial question, you know, in in lieu of Trump actually taking this seriously, right? Um, you had, again, Democratic governors and mayors of cities, Democratic cities, um, in which even Cuomo, right? Like he not only, you know, sent people like elderly people that uh, had COVID back to uh, nursing homes, but just his response and his sort of like, he wrote this book, like before, you know, like we have another year of this shit, man. He wrote this shit like a couple months after, like, you know what I mean? Like this book about like how New York has like beaten COVID. And it's just like him laying the groundwork to like run possibly in a couple of years. Right. But I guess I want to ask this um, and connect it with Lori Lightfoot, especially is because these Democrats, they run as progressives. Right. And they take this moral high ground. And she did, too. Right. And from what I like, remember, she made promises that progressives who may have preferred like her opponent, like could at least settle with. But as soon as she got elected. So talk a little bit about that, right? Leading up, especially to her resistance to like you guys, like actually like not just exercising your right as union members, but as fucking human beings that also care about your students. 
Like talk a little bit about that and like her kind of rightward shift uh, since she's got elected. Well, yeah, we didn't support her in uh, CTU or like most of the progressive movement. But after she won, there was kind of an attitude of like, well, you know, she ran on everything we, we wanted. She did run on raising the minimum wage to 15. She ran on um, a, a nurse in every school, a social worker in every school. Or actually, one of the big things was Rahm Emanuel closed a dozen public mental health clinics. She promised to reopen them. Uh, we actually had a fight on our hands in the last budget because we're like, where's the money for these 12 you know, public mental health clinics? Um, so every single thing she promised, she went back on. And what's wild is that she's still her messaging in, you know, when, when she talks to the, the papers and everything, she tries to reframe everything she does as being progressive. Yeah. Or uh, or even woke in some ways. Yeah. Like it's it's really insidious, too, because they they try to erase um, the vice president of our union, Stacey Davis Gates who's a very strong vocal black woman in, you know, in Chicago. She was voted like, I think, the 13th most powerful woman in the city by Chicago Magazine. Um, But Lori Lightfoot erases her and all the black leadership in CTU by, you know, painting all of our demands as being for, for white teachers. And, you know, unlike a lot of unions, we actually are pretty diverse. But, you know, another another instance of this was when uh, we went on strike in 2019, she had um, every single one of the vice, I'm sorry, every single one of the Democratic Party um, candidates for president came out to support us, especially Bernie came out hardest. Bernie came out the night before a strike vote. He rallied with us. He gave a pep talk to the bargaining team. He uh, used his email list to drive people out to give us support. And then after he did that and, you know, I think all the candidates saw thousands of red shirts rallying around Bernie Sanders like Elizabeth Warren came to town. Everyone except for Pete and Mm. uh, Tulsi in some way showed support. Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Especially Pete. Uh, His husband apparently is a teacher, uh, which a... uh, on TikTok, one of his students uh, chastised him for basically being a fucking bully. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure Pete doesn't give a shit about students at all either. But continue, sorry. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, his track record. Just had to throw a little bit neoliberal shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Tulsi's just a weirdo. And, like, I, I would not have wanted her support. Um, I think it's fine. You know, uh, she and she's got Jimmy Dore. She doesn't need CTU. Yeah, Um, no, she's going to be like running as like (laughs) uh, in the new Republican Party in like 20 years. (laughs) But like even Biden did. He came out. Mm -hmm. uh, He he made a a nice little video for us um, when he, you know, he called into our vice our, our president and, you know, gave us his support. And then Lori Lightfoot tweeted out how she was offended that none of the candidates came out to seek her endorsement. The first black LGBTQ mayor of Chicago. Jesus. And it was like that became a theme of her just posting L's yeah. online constantly. Yeah. Like one of the mo- one of the most tone deaf things she did was um so she she got pretty viral for these memes telling people to stay home like at the beginning of the pandemic and they just her with her arms crossed looking angry and it just says stay home and people thought of her as like a hero because of it. People were posting them like in their houses like cardboard cutouts. Uh, it was really cringe. 
I got to yeah. admit, it's so cringe. And what was cringe is because she was just eating it up and sucking it up. And then the day that George Floyd was murdered and the protests started in the streets of Chicago and the streets everywhere, I don't know if it was just being tone deaf or what, but her staff kept posting those stay home memes and she got roasted for it. Jesus. Because, you know, how friggin' tone deaf can you be? To tell people to stay home. Yes, it's a pandemic, but still like a man has been murdered, right? I did want to mention one thing that I thought was incredibly cynical. And I know I've brought it up to you before and you talked about it, but I, I still think it has to be highlighted because I guess like the undercurrent of also like my show and my personal philosophy, yours as well, is that liberals are like incredibly malevolent and insidious, right? But what they try to do is they, you know, they say the right things and they appeal to quote the right people, right? And they try to seem like the good guys, right? Like the adults in the room. And one thing recently, especially, you know, with the push to have teachers and students go back to school, right, was her saying, and, you know, I think Cuomo, interestingly, not I think Cuomo, but David Brooks, who, uh, you know, listeners may not know, uh, one of the uh, ideological architects of the Iraq war. I mean, he's a fucking ghoul, right? Lori Lightfoot, as David Brooks did, made the argument that if you care about black lives, essentially, and black and brown children, they should go back to school. And the the cynicism in that is that, yes, black and brown children, especially because of the because of our socioeconomics, the lack of attention that they may get at home and especially at school and due to their early development, it's important for them to go to school. It's important for them to have guardians and to socialize. But for you to say that at this time, when you don't even have enough vaccines, when teachers are not a priority, it's very cynical. And I just wanted to bring that up to highlight, right? The cynicism of generally these Democrats and these neoliberals, but especially Lori Lightfoot, right? I, I can give you a great example of a video she just put out tonight of that cynicism. So we're negotiating, they, they walked away from the table last night at 11, 15 p.m. So we haven't been negotiating and she's been putting out videos and stuff. And this one particular video claims that the, the Chicago Teachers Union, because there's about 20,000 of us, that we are demanding to have all of the existing vaccines go directly to us. And the, her messaging on that was, um, yeah, CTU wants it all to go to them. And then she listed off people with all these comorbidities and elderly folks and not children, but because kids can't get it yet. But like, you know, people um, living in poverty. People that are. And it's like, yeah. yeah, what she knows is that we aren't really demanding that. What we're saying is wait until more of us are being vaccinated and then we'll talk about a start date. Exactly. But at the table, that might sound like, yes, give us all of you know the existing, because um, I think there's about 20,000 maybe in the city all the existing vials or doses of it. And um, she knows we don't mean that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking the public knows we don't mean that either. Yeah. The What we're not budging on right now is she will not negotiate on a start date. Mm. She'll negotiate on like uh, cleaning supplies, things like that. And we've actually made progress on that, on like uh, material conditions in the schools. Can I ask you a quick question just for like, a, I guess, a chronological framework. Monday of this week, right? Weren't teachers supposed to go back to school or schools were supposed to reopen. Is that correct? Yes. Or yeah. Okay. And that was also like the second restart date. Okay. Like we were supposed to start or the elementary schools were all supposed to be open to the public. I mean, open in person uh, two weeks ago. Mm. And before that, even right when we came back from break, a few select schools open early. And that's actually why we're already 
collecting mutual aid is because there are a number of teachers that have already been locked out of their Google classrooms because they refuse to teach in person. And so far, though, the second phase, the phase of all the pre-K through eighth grade teachers have not been locked out. I think part of it is that grades were due today. So they wanted to make sure that, you know, we got our transcripts in and then the mayor extended the the date again. So this upcoming uh, Monday could be the next one. But I don't think she wants to be the one responsible for locking out the vast majority of uh teachers in the system. Yeah. So so just to update folks before we get to uh cuz I, I kind of also want to talk about like the history, right? Or recent history of uh, uh the CTU, right? And in context in general context like just across red states, right? Like teachers like going on strike. But like before we get to that, like just to update people. So from what I understood, the threat of the strike was if Lightfoot punished teachers for not returning to schools, right? Which I'm assuming would be fiduciary, right? Or um, apparently there was a, a re-entry of negotiations, right? So, you know, it's not like you guys were going to go on strike, like if you were like just forced, you know, to go back and didn't go back, but it as if she punished you, right? Or you were punished for not going back. Yeah. So just to update folks now, what is the state of the negotiations right now? Because from what I understand, it, it seems kind of like tenuous, man. It doesn't really still seem like there is like a resolution like from both sides that is, is acceptable. So like what's, what's happening right now before we jump to like a you know, background? And, uh, and, you know, at the moment, it's not like any other kind of it's not like a, a typical contract campaign. That's something like we keep talking about and we keep revisiting in the, in the executive board meetings that we're having is that, you know, this is a different creature yeah. than we're used to. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is because it could have deadly consequences like immediately. And so in some ways, like, the, well, the one linchpin is the fact that the mayor won't budge on the start date. Mm. And that's the one thing that we want to uh, be very clear on. And we want to, you know, we don't want that to, we want that to be after, you know, a good number of teachers are at least vaccinated. Exactly. Or at least that would be the starting point yeah. for negotiations. It's like everyone is vaccinated. Now let's talk about the amount of cleaning supplies and things like that we need. And, you know, the, the board, like I was saying, they're willing to budge on that stuff. But the non-starter is they want us to start immediately. I guess then with that context, which is still terrifying, right? Because again, I just want to like underscore to people, like, you know, Trump, sure, the Republican Party denied like the fact that like at first, well, he did that the virus was even like a thing. Right. And like even like lied and fudged numbers about how many people were dying. Right. But we have these people in office. Right. Who are using the cynicism of morality. Right. And trying to make these like false logical arguments. Right. About like saving people. Right. And, you know, we just have to like reopen because we don't have it. But it's like the logic is like, well, if you don't have enough vaccines, like you shouldn't open. But just like to underscore that point, like these people are sociopathic. I've said that before. But uh, let's jump back a little bit, I guess, to 2019 and sort of because this is a unique time, right, where, again, as you said, like the conditions that exist right now form the impetus. Right. And especially like not just from teachers, but like students and their families as well. Right. Uh, for the push to like not go back. But let's jump back uh, to 2019, right, before all this shit, before, like, the world turned to hell, you know? Um, talk a little bit about sort of the movement building, right? What that strike in Chicago involved and what what you guys, like, kind of learned about that and carried and what collectivism, right, and solidarity, rather, you were able to build that kind of carried you out to, like, 
now were you actually in a position to be like, nah, fuck you, we're not going back, you know? Yeah, that, that's a great question because where we're at right now with the standstill with the mayor, a lot of unions can't do. They just don't have the support from the community. You really need that in this kind of fight. And, you know, one of the advantages of, of us being a teacher's union is that we have these like natural allies and parents and uh, students. Can I ask you a question before we continue? Because I kind of want to like, you know, get into like the meat of it, right? How does that, I know it seems like common sense that like, well, I would say common sense that, yeah, man, like public servants would have like a deeper relationship with like people in the community, right? But could you talk a little bit about like how you formed that solidarity from teacher to student to family member and how you guys like were able to build that auxiliary support, like true community solidarity? Like talk about that a little bit, because I want people to understand like it's, it starts in community, man. This is where we do it, right? That part was a difficult hurdle for a lot of union members, CTU members at first, because we have these very close connections to the parents and uh, the students. Some of us teach generations of kids. If you're at the same school for a long time, you'll have kids and then you'll have their kids or, you know, their cousins and their brothers and sisters. But becoming political with those relationships is a really difficult step for a lot of teachers because we're taught to be depoliticized. We're taught like, you know, we shut the door in a union meeting and we talk about union issues. And then, you know, when we're not in that union meeting, we're not to talk about it. And what CTU did pretty methodically starting when we took over leadership in 2010, um, the group core that, that's been in leadership for the last 10 years. Um, and even before that, we were working with community organizations and we were working with ones that weren't mainstream community organizations, ones that depended on things like mutual aid, direct action, um, yeah. groups that would do, occupy schools. So they had ties to the community. Yes. Ties to the community for decades, probably. Yes. Hmm. But like, not just ties, but like the community knows that they'll stick their necks out. Like they'll go to jail um, to keep a school open or things like that. Not just ties like, you know, they give free turkeys on Thanksgiving or anything like that. Like, yeah, these yeah. are the groups. These are also the groups that like mainstream groups don't want to be near because of this for the same reason. And these, those were our natural allies. So it was also difficult for some of our members to see like we were putting time and resources into stopping uh, foreclosures and uh, protesting the banks. Yeah, because they're like, why does that? Sorry to cut you off, but I, I just want like. You know, it's important to highlight like sort of this like, you know, solidarity that you get uh, or you form between people that like are not in these occupations. And I think the thing that you're highlighting, too, is just like these people are like, why does this like, why does it matter to me? Right. Like, it doesn't matter to me at all. Why would I want to like get engaged with this with these union members? Sorry. Continue. continue. And Sorry. like, you know, it's it is polarizing and divisive because we were able to radicalize a lot of teachers this way. And it's phenomenal. Like we have teachers at the drop of a hat. If we need, you know, people to get arrested in action, we'll do that. But it also did kind of bring out a conservative element of our union, too. We, there's a group called Members First who like they're like bring back the bread and butter issues. A lot of them are literally like the spouses of police officers. So they don't like it when we do BLM stuff, oh, um, but they always get outvoted. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's how that's the beauty of the majority. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of this, it's the proletarianization of our profession. And, you know, we're at this crossroads where either we decide that we are the working class and, you know, we fight for low wage workers um, like we have been, which has been, you know, CTU's praxis for the past 10 years, or we fight for this position that teachers used to be in like the AFT had this horrible tagline 
we're a union of professionals. Mm. And we, they would, you know, mark the streets with these big banners that said union of professionals. And I asked around about that. And they said when the idea of teachers forming unions wasn't so popular, part of the, the messaging rap would be, well, you know, we're not like the, the Teamsters. We're not like the painters. We're a union of professionals. Exactly. And um, that got in some people's minds. Yeah. It, that just poisoned to, uh, poison to class solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this term like the professional managerial class. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think especially like coming from academia, like teachers do, there's this idea like if you don't like work in factory or work with your hands, you're a, a blue collar worker. Right. But if you are aside from like a white collar worker, which would be the antithesis, I guess. Right. The dichotomy. Right. If you're like a teacher, you're you're not like working class, but you're also like not a white collar worker, but you are a professional. And it occupies like this weird social, but like also very class based too. which if you're a public school teacher, like you are working class, right? Uh, which like most public school teachers like like they know. But yeah, it's, it's like that that sort of like split to divest like teachers who should be connected with their communities, and like express solidarity and like even direct action necessary from like, you know, union members and like factory workers, especially unionized factory workers that already do that. Right. It's like divide and conquer, you know, to like make it fast. All right. I guess like to jump to it then. Right. Because I really want to talk about like what you guys are doing now. So with that history, given when the pandemic started, you know, there was this like th there was like this sense that Democrats at least would be willing to shut down. You know, they were resisting against, against Trump. Right. And his reaction. So like we all thought like when Joe Biden got elected or even like when the pandemic started, Cuomo, de Blasio, Newsom, Lightfoot, that they would take the necessary steps to make sure that like especially essential workers, because they were calling people essential workers until they didn't anymore. You know <laughs> what? What was that sort of like trajectory like that led up to like this critical mass point where like given like the organization that you guys have like cultivated, right? Not just over decades, especially over decades, but especially during the last year, you know, with the uh, the incoming mayor, you know, what what is like sort of like been the buildup when the pandemic started? What was sort of the response of Lightfoot and how has it led to this like point right now? At the very beginning, Lori Lightfoot was not not saying pretty much not saying anything. And that was what was really concerning to us was there was no like now she's trying to message around why we should reopen everything. But then it was just she was just not reacting. She just wanted to keep things open, it seemed. And it wasn't until the governor, J.B. Pritzker, stepped in and he shut everything down and put us in phase one or whatever. Yeah, they called it phase one where, um, you know, that was the the beginning where most of everything was shut down. And uh, we immediately went into distance learning from that um, that point on for the remainder of the school year um, without a whole lot of direction. Uh, we kind of made it work the best we could. And um, the union maintained that we wanted to work with the school board and uh, the mayor um, for, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic for like what reopening was going to look like. We wanted to negotiate that and they wouldn't meet with us about um, any of that. And then last summer, it kind of came to a head when uh, the mayor and the board were going to push to get schools open on day one in person. And the union, um, you know, this is the whole time they wouldn't negotiate with us. So we called for a meeting of our House of Delegates to vote on a strike date. And we didn't even have to have that meeting. The Board of Education just realized they did not want to deal with the strike. And at the beginning of this school year, we immediately went into distance learning with every couple of months threats of us going back. 
And then uh, the most, uh, the biggest line in the sand they drew was going to be this semester. And with uh, the pre-K through eighth grades, um, with high school still doing distance learning. Um, and now they've been just moving that deadline ever since. I want to ask you something, man, if you if you would be willing to share, that's like probably a little personal, but I think it's sort of endemic of the Lightfoots and like the sort of policies that shift, right? From what I've heard, like seen on Twitter, right? One of your posts, if I'm correct, your wife has cancer? Yes. Yeah, stage four breast cancer. Right? She's comorbid, mm-hmm. right? She's comorbid, right? You posted this article, which I read as well, uh, that claim that Lightfoot said, or there's also not just Lightfoot, but there's like a, what the, this person's name and position. She's like the chief of like CPS or something. Oh, is that Janice Jackson? Yes, yes. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. And I think she was the one that said that teachers that have a relative or at risk personally or have a relative, uh, they've been given waivers, right, from in-person learning. But I saw your tweet, right, talking about the fact that you made an appeal mm-hmm. and they said that you had to show up. Yeah. Even though... Trying not to get mad right um, now. Go ahead, go ahead. So yeah, I appealed, um, <sighs> and then I um, got an email saying that I was still going to have to work in person, and uh, the reason why it said was because they they need an, they need more staff. It had nothing to do with whether or not the medical condition uh, was really a factor in it. And then so I posted the rejection email, and then uh, it went viral. It got a bunch of retweets, and then a few days later, I get uh, I get that rescinded saying that I will not have to go back in. And uh, I think that's what they did was they gave a blanket rejection to everyone. Everyone I talked to was rejected. And then anyone who fought it in any sort of way, you know, we pretty much won the appeal. But that's how they buy us off. Right. Like that's how, you know, I have a big Twitter presence and that doesn't mean I'm better than any of my sisters and brothers who, you know, have maybe even, you know, harder conditions and harder situations. And I mean, I'm thinking about like my pair, the paraprofessionals in my union who make uh, thanks to our contract, they're not making poverty wages anymore, but they're just above it. Like they're not doing so well financially. Well, they're in that weird space where they're not professional managerial, but they're in that weird space. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, like what, to, to kind of speak to that even, our last contract fight was so successful because the paraprofessionals, the ones that w- weren't even in our union, that were in SEIU, um, the ones that they handle like toileting and diapering of like, the, you know, they do the real grunt work. Um, we fought together and they even stayed out on strike another week after us. Yeah. Just to, I'm sorry, they, they stayed out another week after they settled their contract oh, yeah. to stay in solidarity with us as we were fighting for us, fighting for our contract. So like that to me is... That's the answer there. Like, you know, as we're being proletarianized, you know, we need to like say, yeah, we're fucking proles. <laughs> you know, we're all in this together. You know, we might have a bachelor's degree or whatever, but, uh, you know, we're all getting screwed. And, you know, that PMC status of teachers, I don't think is there anymore. They, they, they've opened too many charter schools where the contracts suck or if, they're, if you get a contract at all. Adjuncts, you know, the adjunctification of higher ed, I think, is going to be coming to K-12 eventually if we don't fight it. It's like the gig economy of education, right? <laughs> you know. Uh, you want people to work uh, as much as possible for as little as possible uh, who are precarious, right? Yo, w- without going too far, man, like one thing I did want to mention, especially with this idea of not only just like forcing people back, right, but also like claiming, right, that like you are doing like the right reasonable thing, man. I know people have heard me like talk about this book so fucking much, right? But like the spectacle, right? The society of the spectacle, man. The idea is like when you have like leisure time, right, when you're not being a pro, you become a human being, right? Where 
you are treated like responsibly, right? Where you have all the freedoms of like some supposed leisure time, where it's really just about consumption. But even in this like situation in which people are under threat of like infecting their families, you know, and this idea that when you return home, like that's when you become human again. And the fact that like they would make these cynical ass arguments, yo, like just to tell you that like, no, you're like, you're not an essential worker anymore, right? You're just like a cog in the machine. And even your family who doesn't work for the city, right? Even they're at risk. And and I don't know, man, like I that like I was furious when you were telling me that, man, because it's just like disgusting. It's like just completely disgusting, man, that we would do that. Like, I'm not trying to make it too much of an aside, but like every day that this motherfucker Joe Biden doesn't give us like monthly two thousand dollar checks and shut this shit down. He's a fucking murderer, man. The same way Trump was. I might have to cut that out, but no, I won't probably. All right, man, like to jump ahead then, I guess. Um, so given all of that, and especially like your personal experience, from what I've understood, we were supposed to record this when the CPS in the city and the CTU didn't reach like tentative negotiations, right? I think you guys were like almost about to strike, right? So talk a little bit about like that sort of stalemate, I guess, that you guys are in now. And like, what do you think is maybe going to happen? I mean, you can't like predict. But like, what do you think is going to happen and what is happening right now? Where the situation we're in right now is we took a strike vote that said uh, we will, as a union, meaning every single member, continue to work remotely. And uh, if the Board of Education forces out a majority of our members, the officers who are the ones negotiating our contract, we're authorizing them to call for a strike. And that means everyone will just cease to work. That means we're not logging into Google Meets. We're not doing anything at all, which is, you know, the nuclear option. None of us, none, no one should want that. Um, and we definitely, as a union, we don't. And ever since we took that vote, our mayor has uh, moved the strike date, or I'm sorry, the date of uh, that we're required to be back in person. And the weird place we're in, it's because she has all the authority in the situation, but we have, I think, the bulk of the power. Like we could force her hand, but she, at the end of the day, she could decree it. You know, she can just say, you know, you have to do this. But politically right now, it's really untenable for her to lock everyone out. Apparently, you know, and you said this too, is that she doesn't have the support, yes. right? She's a carpetbagger. So like she doesn't have the support, even of like, you know, uh, Periwinkle, right? Where she rose up at least like through the system, sure. But Lightfoot does not have like that material base, right, that she can rely on, especially compared to the CTU, right? So like she has no power in this situation. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. She does. But like, uh, I mean, her power is she can pump money into things like her her interests are very moneyed. But yeah, what's hard to make to make a prediction in here is that last summer when we threatened to strike, you know, she backed off and she like went to uh, distance learning. But uh, during the last strike, we found out that she was making bets with her friends over about, um, you know, bets on uh, cigars and uh, scotch over how long we would be out on strike. So she could be pretty callous about the situation. And she did a lot of political damage to herself in the last strike. So the fact she was so flippant about it is either she doesn't care and she just wants to burn through all the goodwill she can and because um, she has some sort of agenda or she's politically really stupid. And um, I, I can't tell what it is because she's not a stupid person. She's yeah. she, she made it up to like the top ranks as a prosecutor and a corporate lawyer. I'm going to make a value judgment because like you've dealt with these fucking people, man. 
I've worked for the Democratic Party. Yes. These people, I've said it to you before, they are fucking sociopaths. Yes. Like they are literally so fucking callous, man, where like even their political decisions are, you know, seemingly out of like some morality and appeal, right? To like the majority of people, but they're so fucking callous, not even just stupid. That makes them stupid though, yeah. right? Because if you were an intelligent person, like I'm not saying Trump is intelligent, right? I'm not saying that at all. But if you're talking about emotional intelligence and what you think will connect with people and like galvanize them, you know what I mean? And give you support and continue to political power. You would do that. Yeah. But unfortunately, the Democratic Party, that would require them to actually like do the shit that they believe in. Right. <laughs> you know I mean, like do the shit that they say they believe in. Right. Which would be to unite the black and white working class. They don't give a fuck about that. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm making a lot of value. Just, just we short, had sorry. a uh, libertarian right wing asshole governor, this guy, Bruce Rauner, right before this J.B. Pritzker. And it was just, he was at the right place at the right time. He was anti-establishment. He was someone that like maybe these uh, red and brown coalition folks maybe maybe have thought of as being an ally. Um, fuck those people, man. Jesus. But uh, yeah, fuck those people. Um, yeah, and like, I'm, I think looking at Bruce Bronner is a good reason why we can't ever listen to those people because he he would have been their poster boy in some ways. He was an anti-SJW guy. Um, but also anti-elite, anti-like government establishment. Yes. Which seems a Appealing to you if you're on, I'm going to have a whole episode about this later. We don't align with fascists, y'all. That's it. Hey, we don't align with these fucking people. Libertarians. Uh, well, he would wear caps, Carhartt jackets. Uh, he was a, he was a biker. Um, but he was like, he was also a billionaire, but people bought it. And he like drove his, his, his shitty minivan around the state. Like he couldn't afford a better car and all that, all that uh, messaging and, uh, you know, veneer worked for, it worked to get him at one term. Part of it too, is the Democrats were just before him were so feckless. We had Bogoyevich who, you know, I mean, I have some positive thoughts about him actually, but then when he went down, his Lieutenant governor, who is this feckless do nothing guy, Pat Quinn, who is just your stereotypical Chicago guy who worked his way through the machine, but like was never really useful or good at anything. So when the state was like, you know, we're tired of these establishment Dems, we're tired of uh, them screwing our state. Uh, they, they voted for Bruce Rauner. And because Bruce Rauner was so bad, we were able to, the, the Democratic Party was able to get us a different billionaire, a better billionaire in J.B. Pritzker. So that's how we got a Pritzker as a governor was um, just the shitstorm that came in before him. I'll say this before I ask you, like sort of a closing open question, which I'm excited to hear your response, but I'll say this. You know, I think this whole sort of between Lightfoot, you know, a supposed like, well, she ran as a progressive, you know, but she's just a neolib, right? And like the CTU and the sort of working class solidarity that's behind that, right? That really does underscore the fact, in my opinion, that when the Democratic Party and liberals cannot present a materialist alternative, right, to the right, you get people that fall into this idea of, it's not, it's not structural, right? It's about like what you can do as an individual, right? And especially about like privatization, right? And allowing the corporate sector to do public things, right? And the fact that the Democratic Party keeps chasing this shit, you know what I mean? And, and not even for like, because I don't understand, you know, if, even if Trump said this, like, I'm going to give $2,000 checks. And I'm going to take care of people. It don't give a fuck. It don't matter whether you left the right, bro. You'd be like, okay, cool. You know, but like you're going in this direction. That's not even about like, I mean, none of it is material at all. Right. It is literally about, well, material for you, maybe, but it's not material in the sense that it will actually like affect 
and benefit people's like lives, right? Like just shut the shit down, man. Like you, anyway, I can go on about that, but I, I want to ask you an interesting last question, man. Cause I, I thought about this, like before I talked to you, I was like, man, I want to ask him something that like, I, I don't think maybe that you answered before, or maybe that would benefit me personally. Why do you think it is, especially over the past couple of years with these teacher strikes? Why do you think it is that that has happened? And do you think it's especially important that teachers, specifically teachers, right? And we've talked about the relationships between their communities, right? But why do you think it's important that teachers are, I don't want to overuse this word, sort of a vanguard possibly, right? Or a harbinger, that's a better word, of what is possible for the working class writ large, especially uh, service sector workers, right? This tertiary class, because it's inspiring, especially from teachers. So predict the future. Okay. Tell us what we're all doing wrong and what we can do right. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, I mean, teachers, like I was saying before, we have these built-in community ties. A big piece of it too is we are, you know, the public sector is the majority of the labor movement, like organized labor under, you know, with, with the union. And, you know, of that, teachers make up the bulk of that. So if the ruling class were to wipe us out, that's a huge chunk of the labor movement. And, you know, just having us in there as uh, allies and just sheer numbers in the labor movement, like that could be a, a huge tipping point, you know, if, if they were to bust us. And the way things were going in like, uh, you know, good 20 years ago, we were headed down that path. That was, you know, well, the Reagan administration started it out. They put out this report called Nation at Risk about how the teachers are failing America. And that's how, why all kids are going to grow up and become problems. And that that uh, messaging spun into the super predators med- messaging of the 90s. Yeah. A lot of that. Also, Jesus. I didn't even know that. Holy shit. A lot of that fell on the teachers too. The idea that problems in inner cities were that were because the teachers unions were too, you know, too much fat cats for, for the most part. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of like make it like a through line. Right. I think that's why, you know, neoliberalism and austerity and like, you know, being like almost vampiric right on the public sector where you're just sucking all resources and funds out of it. That kind of like started, I mean, with Carter, sure. But especially with Reagan. Yeah. Right. This anti-government sentiment. Right. And like it kind of like built that like road for like privatized, like public private partnership schools, charter schools. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And like what the Reagan years did was sell that to the Republicans. And then the Clintons, you know, carried it. And uh, with Hillary being on the board of Walmart, Walmart being a huge funder of seed money for the, the charter school movement, like the charter school movement wouldn't exist if it weren't for Walmart or Bill and Melinda Gates. And, you know, all of these ghouls were behind just decades and decades of negative messaging about teachers unions. Our own uh, union leaders nationally were acquiescing to it. You know, I was at a 2010 AFT, American Federation of Teachers Convention, and they had Bill Gates as a keynote speaker. And a bunch of us stood up and walked out in mass. Um, And then we got booed by some of our sisters and brothers who... I think we were in a moment in our movement where people were embarrassed of being a teacher, embarrassed of being a union member, mm. all the negativity. Mm. And so it was like, we're going to have to like glom onto the, the ruling class to keep any respect. And um, we were able to turn that around in Chicago and in LA and a lot of places where the the union did the hard work of reconnecting with communities and um, becoming more seamless with the communities and not just like coming to them when we need their help or them coming to us when um, they need our help. 
you know, like in my house, uh, my wife was organizing, you know, she was talking to parents, all of my uh, kids, classmates, parents about the the situation, having one-on-one organizing meetings where, where they were, she was asking them questions. Um, and then it, what came of that was now there's only one student who's going back in person. And, you know, that's, I'm in the union. She's, you know, very much a, a part of the school. And, you know, we're also in a relationship with the alderman um, who the alderman was on the local school council with my wife at one point. And he's a decent guy. He's a good guy, Matt Martin. He's not a socialist, but he always votes with the socialists. Um, so we'll keep him, but, uh, got to threaten him a little. Oh yeah. Not like, you know, literally (laughs) (laughs) electorally. Yes. And in Minecraft. In Minecraft. (laughs) Uh, before we close out, like, um, I'm thinking now of like a sort of question that I ask all my guests at the end, because usually I ended on a positive note, which you just given, right? Like solidarity of like the working class writ large, you know, not just teachers, but like students and their parents as well. So I'm going to talk to my editor. He might cut the shit up. But uh, do you uh, (laughs) I'm getting kind of deep. But yo, man, like when I think about like the way things are now and I see like things like what the CTU is doing and I see the mutual aid that's happened like during COVID and especially like the uprising over the summer. But like, yeah, I think I'll make this a segment. Yo, do you think like there's (laughs) I don't know if you believe in revolution or not. I don't know how you what you believe. But like, are we going to be I like not even if. I'm going to live through it, or maybe even you, but are we going to be all right? Or <laughs> is it going to be continued horribleness where we all die in this cold, evil, greedy rock uh-huh. controlled by a bunch of sociopaths? Well, well, what keeps me going forward is kind of doing work and like doing the work and I feel mm. like I'm chipping away at the beast. I don't know if we're going to win. Um, I certainly hope so. I think that if we're not fighting and fighting hard, it, we, we, we have zero chance. So like that, that's where I'm at. Like as more adversity like comes at my way in this organizing stuff, the more like clarity I have, like, you know, with the board trying to um, buy me off, um, you know, and I'm still going to go on strike if I have to. Like I've just there's such clarity in like who's good or who's right and who's wrong that I'm just as long as I'm pouring my energy into who's right and what's right. That's what's keeping me going. Because, you know, I think, you know, I look at global warming, I look at all these other things and I just, uh, it's bleak. It's so, it's so bleak. But, you know, I, I just convince myself that, you know, we're going to win and, you know, we have to keep learning from the mistakes we make. And um, I think that's what's going to like at least get us through uh, this moment and uh, hopefully to the next. And I think especially what, uh, what y'all are doing in Chicago and have been doing. And teachers in general, especially, is like a microcosm of like what needs to happen. So I think you and I are both uh, cautious optimists. That's what I call myself. You know, people ask me like, I'm, I'm not a communist. I'm a cautious optimist. I am a communist, but I'm a cautious optimist. <laughs> um, so Kenzo, before you go, brother man, like what what can you plug? Like uh, where are you at? Not just on social media, but are there any mutual aid or any support groups, especially for the CTU, that you can plug people into? Yes, uh, there's a GoFundMe right now for CTU. The important thing about this particular mutual aid fund, it's a strike fund, is that the bigger that pot is, the more we could prove to the mayor that we could stay out on a long strike if we have to. And already we have a number of teachers who've been locked out and other workers who've been locked out. So some of that money's already being dispersed to folks who need it to keep, you know, they're paying their rent and keep their lights on. But um, we need to like really grow that. 
And that's kind of really the effectiveness of that kind of mutual aid is that it's a threat. You know, it really is a threat to the the ruling class that, you know, we pull together, we can hold out and we can hold the line and like, you know, hold that power against them. And so, yeah, I definitely any, you know, anything you can give to that would be much appreciated. Um, you can find me at uh, Twitch at uh, twitch.tv slash class time. I do a Sunday show called Pardon the Ignorance. It's like a Sunday morning panel show with all leftists. It's a lot of fun. Aaron's been on a couple times. Um, we got Tuesday, I do class time, which right now is just dedicated to interviewing CTU members and community organizers here to get our message out. But typically that's that's what the panel is. It's organizers and uh, workers. Uh, and um, but yeah, and then also on uh, YouTube, classtime.gg. That'll get you all the same content. Also, patreon.com slash Kenzo Shibata, and that'll get you access to my podcasts. I I especially want to reiterate, please support that strike fund. Yes. Y'all. Also, like, I've been on, like, Pardon the Ignorance. I loved it. Had a great fucking time, yo. Uh, And, like, check out Class Time, man. Yeah. Like, support the comrade, yo. Especially comrades who are not just, like, obliviating about shit that they've never done, but that they do. So, like, Fucking support Kenzo, man. Like, <laughs> thanks, you know, and support like you as well. Hell yeah, yo. Uh, yo, thanks so much, comrade. Like, I appreciate this. This was like, no worries. I had a good time. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates.